The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Father in heaven, hear the cry of our heart. We want you and your bigness, you and your goodness to meet us in this hour. We want your Christ, the Son of the living God, the eternal begotten of the Father, to show up in this room and magnify himself through his word and through this teaching. I pray that you would meet these students. It's already been a big push here these first two weeks. Papers due at five. Grant grace to them. Sustain them in these two hours. Let their minds be focused. Let them receive all that you would have for them. May they not waste these moments. And then I pray, Father, that you would grant them some rest this weekend. That you would meet them as they seek you. That you would be their upholder. That you would quiet anxiety and give them peace. I pray this all in light of blood-bought grace. For the glory of Christ I ask. Amen. Have a seat. All right. You've all got a handout? Yes. Okay. Track along with that as we go. We've got probably more here than I can tackle in two hours, but we will see. I've got a really old picture here. Ruthie's grown up a little bit. So this is, I think, three years ago. My middle son, Isaac, is now, well, this last year he grew five inches. He's now looking me in the eye. He's crossed the six-foot mark. Janie on the far left is a sophomore here. And then we've got Ezra down here on the left. He's 10 now. And Joey and Joy, twins, both nine. They're peanuts. Ezra, one year older, is 15 inches taller than them. Different, different stock. So, um, we've been at Bethlehem since 2005, and uh, we moved to the cities uh, so that I could teach at University of Northwestern in St. Paul. I taught there for four years, and yet all the while being at Bethlehem, and God opened the door when we started, when we expanded to a full four-year seminary and four-year college, when we did that in 2009. God opened the door for me to come on as the first full-time faculty member, and I love it. God has transformed my family being at Bethlehem. He's given us greater clarity in what the gospel is. It's made me a Jesus-treasuring Old Testament professor, and he's given us a heart for the nations. And I hope that in your, your season here, whether it's two years, four years, that God would awaken such affections for the resurrected Jesus in your hearts. So, Jesus' Bible, the initial three-fourths of Scripture. We're going to start right in. Jesus' kingdom mission. If you were to ask Jesus, what are you about, and what's your 
Bible about, he would probably have a response related to the kingdom. So, Jesus' kingdom mission. He and his followers were absolutely convinced that all those Old Testament dudes knew that he was coming. Indeed, they, they wrote about him. So, a text like this. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And remember, he's talking to the Jewish leaders who had never seen the book of Revelation. They had never had 1 Peter They never even got to read the Gospel of Mark. All they had was the initial 39 books, same books that we have. You search those scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. If you believed Moses, you'd believe me because he was writing about me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you then believe my words? Oh, foolish Boys, walk into Emmaus. You're grieving after my death? Don't you recognize that after the death, three days, the Old Testament Scripture prophesied it. The one who would die would rise again. Oh, you foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer? these things, and enter into His glory. When I'm in the New Testament and I read the word Christ, I very often simply automatically replace it with Messiah. Christos is merely the Greek translation of Messiah, but it's easy for me, even for me, when I'm reading, to think like Christ was His middle name. You know, Jesus Christ, Son of Joseph. And yet it wasn't. And when we read that one word, Christ, we're supposed to be awakened. All these promises, all this anticipation, and the realization of fulfillment is supposed to be, it's all packed into that one little word. We found him. Nathaniel, he's here. The one of whom Moses and the law and all the prophets, all of them, I'm working on my third commentary on Zephaniah. They're all different. And he never mentions the Christ. One of the few prophets that never talk about the anointed one who was to come. But we're told all the prophets wrote about him. So I then have the responsibility, even though he's not given his technical term anointed one, or he's not uh, described by Isaiah's favorite title as servant, I'm supposed to, in light of such words, believe that he's there. And when I read the text, I'm supposed to find him. And as I search, he's glorified. I hope you'll be those kind of readers this semester who are on the hunt for the Messiah. Jesus was fulfilling all that the Old Testament anticipated. Everything, everything points to Him. There's nothing that goes by Him. Every promise is yes in Christ. Here's Jesus in Matthew 5. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Until heaven and earth pass away, 
that's longer than Taylor Swift will be alive. <laughs> Until heaven and earth pass away, not a single jot or tittle will pass from all that, law, from the, that the law has declared. It's all bound up in me. Everything was pointing to me. These are the, my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in that three-part Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the third part, the biggest book of which is the Psalms, all of it is going to be fulfilled. So that third part, I heard it over here, what was it? The writings, that's, that's the title we give it in the introduction to Ben Sirah, which is an intertestamental book, meaning between the testaments. We read about the law, the prophets, and the other writings. That's where the title comes from. And it appears that's what Jesus is referring to, a three-part Old Testament. And all of it must be fulfilled, and it's all going to be fulfilled through me. What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, Paul says, it's happened. It's happened. Not Paul, Peter. This is Acts 3. All of it has, is being fulfilled right now. It, now, that, that's, that's striking because um, there's an already but not yet reality to Jesus' fulfillment. And yet, in light of what he's done, it's already, all of it, inaugurated. All of it initiated, the fulfillment. For all the promises find their yes in Jesus. That's why we say amen. Yes, we believe it. Because the resurrection actually happened. If the resurrection didn't happen, we wouldn't be able to say, yes, I believe. Amen. Every time we pray, the only basis that we have to declare amen following that prayer, yes, I believe it's going to happen, yes, I, I do trust in this God, is because of what happened on that third day. If it didn't happen, no reason to pray. The reason we say our amen is because in Jesus, all those promises, every single one, finds its yes. If Jesus didn't come, even the promises that were already fulfilled in the Old Testament couldn't have happened justly. God can't pour forth common grace. He can't pour forth saving grace apart from what Jesus would do in space and time. Everything finds its fulfillment through him. Jesus' mission of fulfillment, we're told, so he came as the, at the climax of the Old Testament. It was all writing about him. He came as a fulfiller of what the Old Testament anticipated. That's about anticipation. What Jesus brings is realization. And then if you say, well, what is the nature of that realization? He says this, it's about the kingdom. He's out preaching and he says, I have to preach the gospel, the good news. Here and other places. Well, what is it the good news about? It's the good news about that the, the reigning God, the reigning God, the kingdom of God, that the reigning God saves and satisfies. He saves past 
in the past. He justifies us, reconciles us to God, but he also saves in the present. The power of the gospel is such that if you struggle with bitterness today, if you struggle with low self-image, if you struggle with lust, if you struggle with bitterness, it's the gospel that can save you from that present reality. And it's the gospel that will save you from the future wrath of God. For by grace we have been saved through faith. The cross is foolishness to the world, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And if we have been justified with his blood, by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God? Past, present, and future salvation. All of it bound up that this God, the reigning God, saves, but He also satisfies. That's what makes us Christian hedonists, right? That He satisfies the deepest longings of our heart, that He's enough even in the midst of suffering. He saves and satisfies not everybody, but believing sinners. And He does so through the death, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel, the gospel of God. I have to be preaching it here, but I have to preach it to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. What are you here for? I'm here to fulfill all that the Old Testament anticipated. What are you here for? I'm here to preach the gospel. But it's not just the gospel, it's the gospel of the kingdom. That's what he was about. His entire ministry can be summarized as a kingdom ministry. And if that is what the Old Testament was anticipating, then when we go back there, what we should see is anticipation of a king. Jesus rises from the dead, and this is Luke's summary of what Jesus was doing in those 40-day window after Pentecost to the time that he ascends. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. That's it. That, That was the summary of his message. So before he died... He was preaching kingdom. After he died, he was preaching kingdom. Now, here's my summary of what God's kingdom is based on my survey of the Gospels. God's reign over God's people and God's land for God's glory. The kingdom is about a reign. It's less about a place. God's kingdom over God's people in God's land, ultimately for God's glory. God rules, saves, and satisfies through Jesus. It's about a reign over a people, ultimately in a land. Keep that in mind. We're going to talk about that. As Christians, many of us don't think about land too much because ultimately there's no distinction between the... Canadian church and the U.S. church, right? The boundary waters don't distinguish it. It's one of the reasons I don't like to see American flags on stages where corporate worship is happening because it acts as though the church is supposed to be patriotic. Individuals can be patriotic, but the church is not. The church is global, and people from every tongue and tribe should be able to come to Bethlehem and feel absolutely welcome. 
then how does the land fit? God's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom message. Now, think about that. I just, we just looked at this text in Acts 1. So Acts 1 picks up, the story picks up after his resurrection. Anybody know how Luke 1 opens? My dear Theophilus, can you go further? Okay, you, you, know, you know what I wrote to you, O Theophilus, in my former book, which is what? You're talking about Acts. Yes, in Acts 1. Yes. So, O Theophilus, you know what I wrote to you in my former book. Luke is talking to Theophilus, and what was his former book? Luke. Okay, so you know, O Theophilus, what I wrote to you in my former book of all that Jesus began, began to do and to teach. So if we read in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, what we'll find is all that Jesus... Way to go, Jason. We'll find that Jesus... We'll find there all that he began to do and to teach. But here's the kicker. Luke ends with the ascension. Oh, Theophilus, you know all that Jesus... In my former book, all that Jesus began to do and to teach... And it ends with the ascension, so what does that make the book of Acts? What Jesus continues to do and to teach, now through his church, ultimately by his spirit. Acts 16, verse 7, the spirit that Acts 1, 8 said would be poured out on all flesh, and they would be Jesus' witnesses, Jesus' witnesses. They would give testimony to Jesus. From Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That spirit that would come upon them in Acts 16, 7, we're told, is the spirit of Jesus. All that's happening in the church through the apostles, all the teaching, all the healings, Jesus is doing it. Now, get this. Acts 1, 3, during his resurrection appearance, what is he preaching about? The kingdom. So, if we go back to the book of Luke, and we look at the very end of his book, where the parallel time frame, the end of his book ends with just after the resurrection, just before the ascension, and it never mentions the kingdom. Acts summarizes all what he was teaching there as kingdom teaching. But if you go back to Luke... And you say, what does kingdom teaching look like? He doesn't mention the kingdom, but he he describes more what he was teaching. Let's try to get inside of kingdom teaching. Here it is. Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in Moses the prophets and the writings must be fulfilled then. So what I'm about to say is the same thing that I was saying beforehand. These words are the words that I spoke to you while I was with you, pre-resurrection. This is what it was about. What is kingdom preaching about? And then notice what he says. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What are the scriptures in this text? The Old Testament. 
Do you want to understand the initial three-fourths of the Bible? Right here, he's not going to tell us what some of, his, some of it is about. He says here, he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Like, I'm going to give you the big idea. Later, I'll summarize it as kingdom. Here's what I mean. He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. He said to them, thus it is written that the Messiah should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in my name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Two parts to that, Messiah and missions. Have you ever found the Messiah and hope of missions in the book of Kings? How about Jeremiah, Nahum? Deuteronomy? Jesus says, when you're back there, it's not only proclaiming a kingdom that would come, that kingdom is unpacked in in the form of a Messiah and missions, a Messiah that would suffer, ultimately rise again, so that curse could be overcome by blessing. A global curse could could be overcome as repentance and forgiveness of sins, that is, reconciliation with God, becomes operative. That's what you'll find in the Old Testament. Hope for this. Here's Paul. Messiah, missions. That's what Jesus was unpacking when he preached the kingdom. Here's how Paul, look at how he talks. Now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Everywhere Paul goes, what's he doing? Nothing, than, nothing that Jesus, different than Jesus. He's simply carrying on what Jesus was proclaiming. The kingdom, that's what Paul was doing. In Galatia, in Ephesus, in Corinth, in Rome, kingdom. That the reigning God saves and satisfies believing sinners through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. But notice, okay, here it is again. This is at the very end of the book of Acts. So at the beginning of Acts, Jesus is proclaiming kingdom. Very last bit of Acts, last chapter, last verses. From morning till evening, Paul was expounding to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from the Old Testament. You don't just have to camp in the New Testament in order to get to know Jesus or even to make much of him. Paul would say to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 15, you know how you were raised on the sacred writings. Who's Timothy's mom? Grandma? Eunice and Lois? 2 Timothy 3, 5 tells us that's, that's his mother and grandmother. They were the ones who taught him. Acts 16, 1 tells us that Eunice and Lois were Jews, whereas Timothy's father was a Gentile. The sacred writings that Paul says, you know how you were raised up on the sacred writings, that is the Old Testament, that are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. All Scripture. In 2 Timothy 3.16, what Scripture is Paul talking about since he just mentioned the Jewish sacred writings in verse 15? 
the Old Testament. Have you ever considered the fact that you could rebuke, correct, train, teach from the Old Testament to Christians? But wait, that was Old Covenant stuff, right? We're part of the New Covenant. Yes, we are. And the early church is built upon the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. I think the prophets there are the Old Testament prophets, but they're placed after the apostles because you only approach those Old Testament prophets through the lens of the apostles. That is in light of the resurrected Jesus. He's preaching about the kingdom, but notice how he can unpack the kingdom. Like Paul, Jesus, Paul, sorry, like Jesus, Paul's kingdom message focused on the Messiah's death and resurrection and the global mission that would grow from it. I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That's all I'm telling you. What the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ would suffer and that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light. That is darkness overcoming power. He'd proclaim light. You don't have to live in darkness. That sense of despondency and gloom, depression, discouragement. God, through Jesus, is here to move you out of such a place. All right? Open your notes, close your books. I've given you a three-by-five card, and we've got a pop quiz. Open your notes, close your books. That's what I understand anyway, right? It's open notes? That's what pop quizzes are, right? Okay, open notes, close your books. Okay, first question. Who was Maher Shalal Hashbaz? Was that you, Hunter? Okay, Hunter, tell us who, who Mahir Shalal Hashbaz was. Isaiah's son. And what does Mahir Shalal Hashbaz mean? And it's not what was put on Facebook. One, one more time, swift what? Swift is, is the booty? No, it's not to the booty. Well, speed, spoil, haste, booty. It's actually four nouns. And so the translators have tried to see, do I put these together? But it's four names, that are four nouns that are all crammed together as Isaiah's son. This wasn't actually your first question. Um, so Isaiah's son has four names and... He, he were told in this chapter, Isaiah chapter 7, that he's a sign. His son is a sign for one who was to come who would also have four names. Who? Huh? Are you Lindsay? You're Lily. Okay, who's Lindsay? You're Lindsay. Okay. He has a whole bunch of them. What are the four names? So in this chapter, he's called Emmanuel. But two chapters later, in Isaiah chapter 9, he's actually given four names, and we're supposed to see those four names as parallel to Maher Shalal Hashbaz. <laughs> what are those four names that are given to him in Isaiah 9.6? Jackson. Jackson. 
Okay. One of them is Princess Peach. One of them is. Lindsay. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. All of that bound up in the person of Christ. No one has seen the Father except the Son. And yet He reveals the Father to us. Embodied in Himself. Wonderful Counselor. Ultimately guiding all things. Directing all things well. Even when life doesn't make sense. Mighty God, that this very one who is called God with us can actually be the embodiment of the very one who controls all things by the word of his power. Right now, God is speaking all things into existence. Moment by moment, everything is being upheld by him. And if he stopped speaking, you and I would stop existing. And fused into a human body is all of that, the mighty God. The everlasting Father. I thought Jesus was the Son. Abraham was called to be a father of a multitude of nations. It would only come about when a single male offspring of the woman would rise up. He would be a royal servant, and he would embody Abraham's fatherhood for all. Through him, the world would be blessed. And he comes as one who does not break a bruised reed and will not blow out a faintly burning wick. He's that kind of father. And then Prince of Peace, reconciling us to God and allowing us to stand in the midst of all the chaos of the world, knowing that we have a God who through Jesus is 100% for us already. That's what Maher Shalal Hashbaz points to. Now the real quiz. From your reading, what does the acronym KINGDOM stand for? Oh yeah. Is it there? No, it's not even on there. It just says kingdom. No, you're not telling me. You're writing it down. This is your quiz. Everybody put your name on the 3x5 card. Do that right now. Put your name on the 3x5 card. And then on the front side of the 3x5 card, put down what K-I-N-G-D-O-M stands for, each of them. Each individual letter, what it represents in light of your reading. And you can use your notes. Second question. From your reading, what single statement captures the Bible's frame, form, focus, and fulcrum? I broke them down into four parts, but you can put them all together into a single statement that captures, I think, pretty well the message of the Bible. Frame, form, focus, fulcrum. You can put that answer on the reverse side of your 3x5 card. 
All right, pass those to your neighbor. Swap three by five cards. Either way, just make sure you don't have your own. Okay, no words, because Elliot is going to start us out. Kay, are you Elliot? Then tell us what K is. Everybody, grade, your, grade the quiz that's in front of you here. What's K? Kickoff and rebellion. So what period in the story of salvation are we talking about with kickoff and rebellion? Creation, fall, flood. Creation, fall, flood. Kickoff and rebellion. I. Let's go with Christina. Instrument of blessing. So we're not talking about horns here. What are we talking about? Well, by instrument, what do I mean? By instrument, I'm not referring to musical instruments. What am I referring to? What were you saying, Gabe? Something that's going to be used to convey something, right? So an instrument of blessing, and we're talking about which period in history? You, patriarchs, okay. So the, the age of the patriarchs, and they're set apart in an age of curse. Through them, as a channel, God's going to use them to overcome curse with blessing. Next stage, Katiana. Nation redeemed and anybody commission. So they're not only brought out of Egypt; they're giving they're given marching orders. And what nation are we talking about? Israel. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, twelve boys, and thirteen of them become Israel. That is, two grandkids make up are added, one son is out. Which, which son is pulled out that's not counted among the 12 tribes? Levi. Joseph gets two of the tribes. There's no tribe named Joseph. He gets his two sons, and they are Ephraim and Manasseh. Bingo. So, total of 12 tribes, and then the Levites, every tribe needed a pastor. They needed pastors, and so that's what the Levites are going to play. In each tribe, they're going to be the, the shepherds who are going to um, guide the people, supposed to, in godliness. So, nation redeemed and commissioned. So, now they're out of Egypt, but they're heading somewhere. Where are they heading? Let's go with, where's Abigail? Abigail Hogan? That's you? Okay. Okay, government, where is it? Government in the promised land. So, here we're talking about the conquest, and what else? What happens after the 12 tribal league at the conquest? It gives rise to kingdoms, a monarchy, a united monarchy under Saul, David, and Solomon, and then a divided monarchy with 20 kings in the north, 20 kings in the south, right? So government, oops, government in the land. D, what happens? Due to sustained rebellion. Dispersion and return. Is it Aaron? Bingo. So, 
dispersion and return. So what period in salvation history are we talking about? They've been in the land now. Exile and initial restoration. So I say initial because Isaiah anticipates that there's going to be two stages to the restoration. The first one is going to be led by one figure and it will allow Israel to get back in the land. But there's a greater stage. And it's a different figure that Isaiah gives a title to that is going to bring about this more ultimate stage. So the first stage, who's it? Who, who does Isaiah name as the agent that will ultimately bring about return to the land? Cyrus. But there's a greater servant. That's what Isaiah calls him. A greater servant who will not only restore to the land. I mean, they've got to get back there because the Messiah, Micah said, is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. But the Messiah is supposed to bring great deliverance on a global scale. And so the second stage of restoration, after initial restoration, what we're expecting to come is reconciliation with God. And that's what the servant will bring. Cyrus gets them back to the land. The servant brings reconciliation with God. Government in the land, dispersion and return. This is the foundation of the story. But it's not the fulfillment. It sets the stage, anticipation gives rise to realization, and so now we move into the next setting. What is it? Oh, let's go with, where's Josie? Right there. Overlap of the ages. So, oh, I don't even have it here. Okay, I'll comment on that a little bit later. Can you unpack for me what I meant by overlap of the ages? Apparently, there's two, at least two ages, right? Because they're going to overlap. So what, what's part of that first age? It's before that. He would be part of the overlap. So before Christ even comes, what's part of that age? Anybody help, Josie? You are, are you Eris? Okay, did I say it right? Okay, one more time. Mosaic Covenant Covenant is back there. And what's the primary, what does, um, the Mosaic Covenant is actually named something in Jeremiah 31. The Old Covenant. So that's the first old thing in that age, the Old Covenant. What else is old? Old Testament, okay. (laughs) Okay. The, what do I, old, oh, old age, that is an old age, there's only two players that uphold the two ages. Each one is the upholder of each age. Who's the one upholding the first age? That is, everyone in that first age is connected to him. He's the covenantal head that oversees everything. Adam, you're either in the first Adam or you're in the last Adam. You'll see Jesus is not called the second Adam. He's called the last one. Meaning that there's many pictures of Adam. Israel as a nation is the son of God called to do and be what the first Adam was called to do and be. Israel was called to be imagers of God, yet like Adam, they disobeyed. And like Adam, who got kicked out of his paradise, they got kicked out of theirs. 
Yet in the fullness of time, the representative of the Son of God nation comes as the last Adam is and does what Adam was supposed to be and do, an imager of God. And he brings about entrance back into Revelation 2.7, to him who overcomes, I will give him the right to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. Jesus takes us back into the garden. And yet, in a way that is escalated. Overlap of the ages. We're still, we still have this age of Adam, and yet there's a future that is intruded in the person of Jesus so that we have an overlap. We'll talk more about that. M, mission accomplished. What are we talking about? What period in salvation history is this? Second coming and beyond, right? Christ's return and kingdom consummation. So this is kingdom. Kick off and rebellion, instrument of blessing, nation redeeming commission, government in the land, dispersion and return, overlap of the ages, mission accomplished. Unless you've got a better way to remember the story, try this one out. When my kids were five, they had kingdom down. And then every person, every event, you can just kind of fit it in, figure out where it falls, and you'll have a better understanding of how it's moving ahead to culminate in the person of Jesus. So how about this? The Bible's frame, form, focus, and fulcrum. There's our statement. God's kingdom through covenant for his glory in Christ. What's the frame? This wasn't part of your quiz. All you had to do was give me the statement. God's kingdom, that means it's, God's kingdom is really holding everything together in Scripture. This is all about His reign over all things. A reign that on the seventh day of the original creation was just realized. He sat down not in a rest of laziness, but a rest of sovereignty. All that He had created was good, and all of it was at peace with Him and Him with the world. And then the fall came, His sovereignty didn't end, but the rest and peace did. So when Jesus showed up, Jesus said, I and my Father are working, not resting. We're in the process of reclaiming the kingdom that's been destroyed. Frame, what's the form? Through covenant. So think, how many major covenants did I talk about? Five. Five. Okay, we're going to talk about those in a little bit. Five major covenants. I'm putting Adamic and Noahic together because the Adamic, the, the Noahic, um, both from the perspective of Hebrew in the way that it talks about the, the bringing about of this covenant, it uses the language not of covenant making, but of covenant um, fulfillment, covenant reestablishment, reenactment. And then there's so many clues in Genesis chapters 6 through 9 that Adam, that Noah is the next Adam. Everything is decreated. It goes back into a watery chaos. The Spirit, once again, is blowing over the waters. In the ESV, he's translated wind. Same word, wind and spirit. And then you end up with one who's called to be an imager of God. Pardon? Not yet. We're just talking about Noah. So Noah is called as an imager 
The language of image of God is used in Genesis 9-6. He's called to fill the earth, multiply and subdue it, just like Adam was. He's one man with one wife with three boys. And then there's going to be another's fall, another sin, related to fruit and related to nakedness. He's being portrayed, we've decreated, and then we have a new creation. We're starting over again. That covenant, though, the Adamic Noahic, then the next, the next covenant is what? It was already mentioned. Abrahamic and third, Mosaic. All of these are just named after the main mediator of the covenant, the one who's at the top. The next one, Davidic. And finally, New, the one that's not named after the mediator, the New Covenant. But in Scripture, we have these two parts of our Bible, and the early church fathers named the two parts after the two main covenants. We miss it because we, in English, just render them testaments. But testamentum in Latin is the word for covenant. So we have the old covenant, the new covenant. That's what dominates these two eras. And in Jeremiah 31, when God says, Behold, Israel, the days are coming when I will make with you a new covenant, not like the covenant that they broke when I brought them out of Egypt by my hand, even though I was a husband to them. So which covenant is, does the new covenant contrast with? Not like the old covenant that they broke when I brought them out of Egypt by my hand. Mosaic. The new covenant doesn't contrast with Abraham directly. It doesn't contrast with Adamic. It comes as the climax of those, but when we're talking about contrast, it contrasts with the Mosaic covenant. That's what it's replacing. And it's the Mosaic Covenant. I mean, Genesis includes Adamic, Noahic, and Abrahamic. The Davidic is ultimately pointing to the New Covenant. It's the king, promise of kingship and global lasting reign that is ultimately embodied in the person of Christ. So in Genesis, we get the first two covenants, and they're, but really they're ultimately just a prologue to the Mosaic Covenant that comes in Exodus, and then it carries us all the way through the rest of the Old Testament. That is the overarching covenant against which the New Covenant stands. So two main covenants, but the way the Bible comes to us, all the literature, all the poems, all the laws, all the prophecies are bound up within covenantal material. Even Genesis, Genesis 1.1 through 2.3, all the rest of the book that covers you know, through Noah, through Abraham, all the way through Jacob, all of that was written by Moses. And he didn't write it before he got to Mount Sinai. He wrote it after Mount Sinai, after the rebellion of the golden calf, after God established the Mosaic covenant with them. He had sources, I think. But he, he actually writes down Genesis and we have to read Genesis in light of Sinai because that was the lens through which he was crafting the book in order to give it to his people. The Old Covenant colors all of Scripture until we get to the New Testament and it's triumphed, trumped, uh, trumped. It's 
There's something that is more superior than that covenant. And Moses himself anticipated it, as we'll see when we get to Deuteronomy. And I get to come back in and teach again. So, those were, that was your quiz. You can mark down out of eight points what your friend got. You can give it back to your friend. Just do that. Mark down what their grade was. Give it back to your friend. And some of you can say, I'm really glad I took good notes. And some of you can say, I should have taken more careful notes, and that quiz will not count. Okay? That quiz doesn't count. Now, we're going to take 15 minutes, 15 minutes, rapid-fire questions from you. I need someone to time this so that I don't go over. Jackson's got the watch. Okay? 15 minutes. Joy raised her hand, so Joy's responsibility is going to be to see how many questions we can get through. Okay? That you just gotta, all you got to do is keep a tally. You ready? Go. Rapid-fire questions. Anybody? On any of your reading? Anything related to the Old Testament? You're up. Matt. What do you say to the people on YouTube that are saying, you know, we have to go back to the Old Testament, keep the laws and all that? Yeah, there's a rising number of those that are saying go back. We could talk about it one-on-one, but ultimately what's at stake is they've failed to realize the significance of Jesus. What precedes his shadow, he's the substance. And if you go backwards, you're failing to recognize who he is and what he's done. The old covenant does not bear direct binding. It's not directly binding on believers. It doesn't mean that it's not binding. It's just not directly binding. We'll see, you'll see in your reading on the law, at least as I understand it, that we can't consider any promises or any laws given to Old Testament Israel without considering how they relate to Jesus. Jesus embodies Israel, and so in his law fulfillment and in his promise fulfillment, he fulfills things in different ways. So with respect to food laws and the things like Um, the feasts and festivals. At one level, those past things are annulled. He embodies them. He, He fills them up. And so to go backwards is as if he didn't come. Other laws, his fulfillment is giving us the power to keep them, like adultery. It looks the same over here as it did over here, except now we have a new pattern, and we have a new, a new pattern, and we have real pardon. And we need both of them. Abraham didn't have Jesus' picture of what it looks like to remain absolutely faithful and to never objectify someone of 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 the opposite sex. But to just treasure them as a sister, as a brother. Abraham didn't have that. We have Jesus. He's the perfect pattern. But not only that, he's pardoned. Meaning that in Jesus, we approach this life in a way that Abraham saw from a distance and yet didn't fully realize in the same way God's 100% for us in Christ. And it's fa- those who want to go backwards are failing to recognize what Jesus has done. We can talk more about that potentially when we hit the law chapter. Is it J- John? Yeah. Okay. Um, building off of Matt's, how would you respond to, especially in the gay community, where we bring up Leviticus or whatever, and then they say, well, what about all of the passages about not wearing mixed cloth? 
where would be the differences between us drawing morality, um, our Christian morality, from the Old Testament and some things like wearing mixed cloth that we no longer that we no longer do today? Yeah, great question. So we know that Peter can say, "Be holy in all your conduct, because it is written." Be holy as I am holy. And he goes right back to Leviticus chapter 19. He uses the Old Testament. He uses Leviticus as the basis for Christian ethic. And yet, I think he's only doing it in light of Christ. So similarly, what we would have to do, you could think of Jesus as like a colander. And we've got to take all those laws and put them into that colander and see what comes out on the other side. His law fulfillment influences things. And so the question would become, why is it that we would affirm that homosexuality is still bad and yet that the issue of cloth is different? And when you read my law chapter, the chapter on law, which you'll get to do when you go to Deuteronomy, you're going to see that there's different kinds of laws. All of them relate to us. I don't break it down like, well, the moral only relates, but the civil and ceremonial don't relate. I think all of them relate to us, but not all in the same way. Jesus comes, and we have to consider, what was that law about? And in light of Jesus' coming, how does it alter, transform, or annul that previous law? You'll get there later this semester. I think that all of it is important for us for understanding God. We have to, because he never changes, so that's an, that's an unchanging element. But it, we have to get down inside of that Old Testament and say, in what way is it pointing to us, uh, telling us more about God's will, God's character, or God's purposes? And then we have to ask ourselves, in light of what Jesus has done, and it, it, it's not an easy grid work, but in light of what Jesus has done, and in, what we, in light of what we see in the New Testament, how does that influence our reading about the lasting applicability of that particular issue? But again, we're going to cover that more in a few weeks. Isaac. We have to, Paul had a framework for distinguishing cultural practices that are not bound up 
with the work of Christ and a proper worldview versus cultural practices that are intimately bound up with core issues in our worldview and are just wrong. So he could tell Timothy, as having a Jewish mother and grandmother, yet his dad was a Gentile, Timothy had never been circumcised. So as a man, a young man around your age probably, he goes and he gets circumcised. Whew! But when Titus asked the question, Paul would not, would not let Titus get circumcised. And the difference was that with Timothy, it would open up doors as a Jew, with a Jew, going into this region. But with Titus, as a full-blown Gentile, it would give the wrong appearance that circumcision actually means something. So he had a framework for being a Jew to Jews and being a Greek, being like the Greeks to the Greeks, and yet in both contexts never compromising the gospel. And that's what's at stake. We have to have a framework of engaging in cultural practices that are And, and be able to assess with a framework that says, is this bringing glory to Jesus? And I think that building a physical temple after Jesus as the temple and the church in Jesus is the temple, it would be going backwards in the story of salvation. And you fail once again to give Jesus all the glory that he deserves by thinking you're supposed to build a future temple. And yet, Paul would have no trouble, as a Jew, celebrate, continuing to celebrate Passover, but only as a picture to the coming of Christ. And, well, Passover, that would be a different... I, I don't know. I, I've wrestled with this, because would Paul have to have another sacrifice? Would you have to sacrifice the lamb as if it were a picture of the Christ? And I'm hesitant to think that Paul would affirm even the picture of sacrificing a lamb as a sin offering, as a guilt offering, as a burnt offering. He would have no problem sacrificing a lamb as a fellowship offering because that didn't have to deal with sin. So anything that is bound up in Jesus' saving work if we engage in it among the cultures and it by nature is anti-God, anti-Christ, it can't be. It can't be in light of how the new age has overcome the old age. Hunter. Uh, you stated that you had found in Zephaniah pictures of the Messiah. Yeah, so many. So Zephaniah is about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is about Yahweh's war of judgment against sinners. But the war of judgment within Zephaniah is called a sacrifice. And God invites the sinners to come to the sacrifice. They might think they're part of, they're part of the people who get to eat it, but instead, Zephaniah is actually portraying them as the ones who will be slaughtered. But the image of the day of the Lord... So the day of the Lord, it was already, it already, 
An intrusion of the day of the Lord happened at the flood. An intrusion of the day of the Lord happened at Sodom and Gomorrah. An intrusion of the day of the Lord happened against the Canaanites. God's destruction of Babylon, Assyria, and his destruction of Jerusalem, is all, all of it uses day of the Lord language. And yet all of those little small pockets of the day of the Lord culminate in a six-hour window of darkness. And all four Gospels mention it. That it grew dark, and it uses the very exact language that we find in Old Testament Day of the Lord text. That at the cross, what is Jesus doing? He's experiencing the war of God against sin. There is still a future Day of the Lord coming for any who do not find themselves bound up in Christ. But in Jesus, the Day of the Lord comes. And what Zephaniah anticipates is that in the midst of the Day of the Lord, it will be a day of judgment, but then out of that Day of the Lord will come new creation. And how it's worded is, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for I will... For my judgment is to... Wait. Wait for me, declares the Lord. For my decision, um, wait for me, declares the Lord. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For my decision is to gather nations, to judge peoples. Uh, yuck. Zephaniah 3 9, for at that time I will change the speech of the peoples. At the time of the day of the Lord, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. And I will gather my worshipers from, his, from beyond the rivers of Cush. I will gather my worshipers. The change of speech associated with the day of the Lord. Peter, in Acts chapter 2, quotes Joel 2. What are you seeing is happening in this transformation of tongues and the pouring out of the Spirit? It's what Joel said would happen in the latter days. The day of the Lord would come, and I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. But Joel never mentions the change of tongues. Zephaniah alone mentions the change of tongues. A purification of speech so that all people from every tongue, tribe, and nation will call upon the name of the Lord. Calling upon the name of the Lord is also part of Acts 2. So I see Jesus embodying the day of the Lord and then giving birth at Pentecost to the fulfillment of Zephaniah chapter 3. And in Zephaniah chapter 3 verses 9 and 10, the only people group that's mentioned as an example of global restoration, is that God will let his worshipers come from beyond the rivers of Cush. That's Ethiopia. In Acts chapter 2, nations from all over the world are gathered, but Cush is not mentioned. Ethiopia is not mentioned. And I think, Zeph I think Luke holds off on mentioning Ethiopia until Acts chapter 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch in order to identify fulfillment of Zephaniah chapter 3. And all of it, says Luke, is happening by the power of the Spirit of Jesus. Then in Zephaniah chapter 3, 14 and 15, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away His judgment against you. He has cleared away your enemies. Fear not. You know how 
when Jesus entered into Jerusalem in John chapter 12, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, it's mentioned, it, he, he cites Zechariah. But Zechariah chapter 9 says, Rejoice! Your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey. John quotes it as, Fear not! John quotes it as, Fear not, O daughter of Zion, your king comes to you. There's only one place in the Old Testament where daughter of Zion, fear not, and daughter of Jerusalem, fear not, and king of Israel occur. And all of them show up in John 12. The only place in all the Old Testament that all three of those occur is in Zephaniah chapter 3, 14 and 15. It's anticipating the king of Israel will come at the day of the Lord to save his people. And Jesus, John crafts John chapter 12 in a way that echoes the promise that God would come at the day of the Lord as king of Israel to save daughter of Zion so that she would not have to fear. And Jesus embodies that. He is the king, Yahweh, coming in at the day of the Lord. Three ways that I found him in Zephaniah. Thanks, Jackson. How many did we get? Wow, not very many. Okay. Let's see. Kingdom. Let me just take 15 minutes to walk through the story that you're going to see in the Old Testament. You read about it, you heard about it, but not from me. Well, you read about it from me. Anyway, so here we go. Kick off in rebellion. God begins in a garden. The story at the end of the Old Testament will end in a garden. It begins in a garden where God creates one man and one woman. He he calls them to fill the earth. They're distinct from all other creatures because they're imagers of God, called to reflect, resemble, and represent Him in the world. So when God says, fill the earth, multiply and subdue it, His goal was not to see humans spread. The goal was that His image would be spread. And the point of the image is to draw attention to that which it is imaging. The vision was that in the midst of Adam and Eve coming together, a kingdom family would in time create a kingdom community that would fill the earth with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. The fall happens. And God comes in judgment, but before He proclaims judgment, the fall, before He proclaims His judgment, we get the very first gospel promise. There's a serpent who's been an instigator. And God declares, Your offspring, O serpent, will stand in animosity with the woman. But the offspring of the woman will crush your head. He will crush your head. There's anticipation here of a single male descendant who would rise to overcome the serpent. The entire book of Genesis is driven by genealogies. There's two different groups. There's linear genealogies, which means A gave birth to B and other kids, B gave birth to C and other kids, C gave birth to D and other kids, and then there's segmented genealogies. A gave birth to B, C, D, B had these kids, C had these kids, D had these kids. There's five sets of genealogies associated with the structure. These are the generations of. These are the generations of. Five genealogies. Two of them are linear genealogies. And those two linear genealogies are focused on the line of promise that was hoping in the offspring. 
the three segmented genealogies are all the rebels. That is the mission field. And the book is shaped in order to identify two lines. The offspring of the serpent are not snakes. Jesus will say, you think you're the offspring of Abraham? I tell you, you are, you are children of, your dev- of the devil, of your father, the devil. That's the offspring. Those who embody the characteristic, the activity of the rebellion of the serpent in the garden, and those who are hoping in the one who would overcome him. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. Sin infects and affects everyone. It culminates in another judgment called the flood. So you've got the waters of judgment here. Kickoff and rebellion. We move into I, instrument of blessing. The flood gives rise to this one family that then multiplies, Genesis chapter 10. That multiplication becomes spreading through the Tower of Babel. Rebellion spread to the ends of the earth. Rather than the image of God, those who are, who are dependent, trusting, surrendered, celebrating, now you've got rebels all over the planet. And yet, out of one of those 70 families, there's 70. Remember that. All of humanity is bound up in 70 families. You can just count the names in Genesis chapter 10. And how many people would go as children of Jacob... How many Israelites would show up in Egypt? Seventy. Israel is a new humanity. That's what's being declared. A new humanity through which God would do a work. So out of these 70 families, God picks one of them. Terah, Abraham. It springs out of Shem. Shem's line gives rise to Terah, who's the father of Abraham, through whom all the world would be blessed. So you've got this patriarch, and God makes three promises associated with multiple offspring. All those stars up there, we're told, when we get to Numbers chapter 24, Balaam builds off of this prophecy. All those stars up there point to, I see a star, a single star that will rise, that will reign. And when that single star comes, all the light of the other stars will go strangely dim. He will be brighter and better than all of them. Abraham was told, your offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And yet, as he would become a father of a multitude of nations, the blessing would only come, we're told in Genesis 22, 17. This is what it says. Your offspring will possess the gate of his enemies. Third masculine singular pronoun. And through your offspring, all the family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Abraham's offspring will only become many. He will only move from being a father of a single nation to becoming a father of a multitude of nations when the offspring of promise the same offspring of the woman that was promised in Genesis 3.15 arises. And that's why missions happens in a very distinctive way only when we get to the New Testament because now the the offspring has come and now the blessing can move out. Abraham moving beyond a father of one nation to being a father of a multitude of nations. Not only that, God promised that he would have a home, a land. He'd be be planted and yet as we know in Hebrews chapter 4, if Joshua had ultimately given them rest, why would it still talk about another? 
remember this. The Garden of Eden was in the midst of a world. And God planted the garden. He told Adam in Genesis 2.15, I place you here in order to work it and guard it. That is, serve it and protect it. In that sphere, there'd be plants, there'd be animals, and there would be a family. But the goal wasn't just that he would keep his reign. Remember, husbands and wives getting to reign together. Fill the earth, multiply, and subdue it. Have dominion. Male and female together having dominion. That's Genesis 1. Perfect equality before God. Perfect opportunity to resemble, reflect, and represent him. And then it's in chapter 2 that we find out that as they rule together, there is a head and there's a helper. But in the midst of the garden, what was the goal? That they would fill the earth multiply and subdue the earth. That is, that the Garden of Eden would be expanding. God created a perfect world, but He did not create a complete, completed world. Adam and Eve had a responsibility to take what was so beautiful in the garden and to see that temple where God dwelt in their midst, see that temple ever expanding and filling the earth. That was the goal. So the land of Israel is a picture of the Garden of Eden. Israel is called to do and be what Adam was called to do and be. And yet never was the land supposed to stay by itself. The land was merely the beginning. The land of promise. The vision was that when the offspring would come, what would he do? He'd possess enemy gates. That means he's gone beyond the original turf and now he's claiming new turf that was taken by the serpent and his kingdom. That is that the promised land would be expanding to fill the whole earth. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 4. God promised Abraham the world. But once again, land matters. Then we've got the compass That through you, Abraham, north, south, east, and west would be overcome by my blessing. Right now, it's overshadowed by curse. But the day is coming when people from every tongue and tribe, people and nation, will all of a sudden be saturated with mercy. And it's going to happen through you, ultimately through one who would represent you. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the twelve, they end up in Egypt And for the first time, what was only a promise begins to be realized. Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, in five different ways it tells us Israel multiplied, grew great, exceedingly, expanded. And God begins in a small way to fulfill the promise here. They get brought out of Egypt through waters of judgment. Like at the original flood, there's a whole host that gets destroyed. And yet there's a small group that is preserved. Like Adam and Eve getting animal skins put around them that is redeemed through sacrifice. Noah and his wife and three sons and their wives come off the ark and right away the first thing that they do, remember they had pairs of every animal, male and female, except the clean animals. 
They had to have seven of each of those. Why? Because God already knew that the same wickedness that brought about the flood was still in the hearts of all the man. Genesis 8.21 tells us that, that exactly. That the eight people who were alive, that's only eight people on the entire planet, the wickedness of man's hearts is evil from their youth. And yet God had mercy in store. That's why he had them take on the ark, the extra animals, so that when he got off, he offered a burnt offering. Before the tabernacle, it's the only offering for sin. He offers a burnt offering, and it's a pleasing aroma to God. And then immediately, the very next verse says, God establishes the promise that he will never again judge the earth by water. That is common grace. God lets the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He lets the rain fall on the just and on the unjust. That kind of grace is blood-bought. It was bought through sacrifice. They arrive at Mount Sinai. God gives them his instruction. He calls them, hear my voice, obey me, so that you might be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God wants them to be priests in the middle of the world. Just like priests show up at the temple and people, if they want to meet God, go through the priests in order to encounter God. You will be a kingdom of priests. The entire nation will be priestly. Well, if the entire nation are priests, who's supposed to come to them in order to meet God? That's a question. The world? world? Ezekiel 5 verse 5 says, God put Jerusalem in the center of the earth. Mesopotamia, wrapping up here. It comes all the way down. There's... A giant desert here, and there's a Mediterranean Sea here. And so that makes it really hard. And then there's Egypt down here. That is the center of ancient civilization. And if the Assyrians or Babylonians and Persians want to expand their empire or destroy Egypt or extend and have trade with them, or if Egypt down here wants to reach out to Mesopotamia, the easiest way to do it is right through the land between Israel. Israel was indeed in the center, and in the middle of Israel was the very presence of the living God at the temple. God called Israel to heed His voice, to do it perfectly, in order to have influence on the nations. But they didn't. Because those tablets were stuck in a box rather than written on the heart. But the day is coming... Jeremiah tells us, where no one will remember the Ark of the Covenant anymore, because all of Jerusalem will be the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was the throne of God, and on that inside the throne, the very place where his image would have been were the tablets of stone. But then if all of Jerusalem is the Ark of God, who's in Jerusalem? It says, the nations will gather there. And then, Judah and Israel will be joined together again in Jerusalem. This is Jeremiah chapter 3, 16 through 18. All of Jerusalem becomes the ark of God. And then in Jeremiah 31, we find out that those people who are gathered to Jerusalem have the law written on their hearts. That is, everyone who's identified with the new covenant has become the ark of the covenant. The presence of God resting upon you, and now the law is within And at the very place in the temple where there was supposed to be an image, 
you become the temple of the living God and the image of God works out through you. And you begin to be witnesses of Jesus from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth as the glory of God expands. These are sinners. They need a sacrifice. It's there as provision, but as the nation as a whole, they continue to sin. Golden calf, 10 of the 12 spies, 38 more years in the wilderness. God brings them in. Joshua enters them in. He's the leader of a kingdom conquest. But it's just a small picture. But it's very much like what was happening at the flood. God is overcoming sin in order to establish His presence. He's going to set up His presence here where God is as holy. And that means you can't have a dirty temple or a dirty sphere of sacred space. And so if there is uncleanness, it's got to get out. That's why it doesn't mean that the Canaanites were more wicked than the Moabites or more wicked than the Syrians. Why didn't God take out the Phoenicians at this time? Because He hadn't designated their turf as the place where He would set up His residence. It's not that the Canaanites were more wicked than the others were. It's that they were wicked and God's presence was going to be in their midst. Don't take sin lightly. It doesn't mesh with God, and He's a God who takes sin desperately seriously. And if you haven't felt the weight of that, feel the mercy of God that His judgment hasn't come yet, rather than growing complacent and acting like it'll never come. Israel continued, so, so it's a picture of paradise. Adam had his paradise. The new son of God has their paradise. They're finally home. The, full, the, the first fulfillment, installment of the promise given to Abraham. I'm going to give you a land, but the vision was that that land would become lands. But Israel here continues to sin. There's the 12 tribes that give rise to the monarchy, that gives rise to the divided monarchy due to sin. Then in 723, Assyria comes and destroys the northern kingdom after 20 kings, 10 dynasties. There's only one dynasty of the 20 kings in the south, but ultimately in 586, they too get destroyed. They're kicked out, just like Adam was kicked out, but then God in His mercy restores them. We've got Haggai, Zechariah, Joshua the priest, Zerubbabel the governor, and then later, Ezra the priest, Nehemiah the governor. They're back in the land, but we read in the book of Malachi how far they were. And the Old Testament, Malachi being the oldest book that we have in the Old Testament, it's just, it's like their hearts haven't changed. They're the same people they were all those years. They're in need of someone greater. You're going to see that Jesus' Bible didn't end with Malachi. It ended with Chronicles. I already mentioned how Isaiah anticipated a two-stage restoration. Chronicles ends with the declaration of Cyrus, you can go back to the land. That's how the old Jesus' Bible ends with the declaration of Cyrus. So if Cyrus was the instigator of restoration to the land, but we already know through Isaiah that there's a two-stage restoration, what are we expecting? Who are we expecting? 
Pardon? The next restorer. The next restorer. And you turn the very page. After it mentions, Cyrus says, go back to Jerusalem. And you turn the page. These are the generations of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the king of the Jews. That's what they're expecting. Chapter 2 tells us that the wise guys from the east are coming to find the king of the Jews. And Matthew's going to end his gospel saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. All of Old Testament hopes falling upon him. Jesus comes embodying the lamb. He's the perfect, obedient one. And through Jesus, a much greater conquest than anything that Joshua brought begins to come to fruition. There is an expansion from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The presence of God upon his people, enjoying fellowship with the living God through Jesus, begins to get expanded, expanded, expanded. And the very promise that was given in Genesis 1.28, fill the earth with my image, begins to be realized through the church. It's reached all the way to Minneapolis. And the presence of God is resting on His temple. The temple of God is filling the planet already. This is how we're to be thinking. And God is claiming unclean turf and transforming it into something beautiful and holy and pure. He's decided to build his community, his kingdom community filled with sinners who treasure Jesus and have tasted and seen that God is good. And yet, there's still car accidents. There's still cancer. And there's an escalation of pornography. The old age continues. And yet, in the midst of suffering, we find grace to persevere in light of the promises of God. When death comes, it is but gain to something greater. And in the, this period where we are longing and fighting and battling because of what Jesus has done, there is grace to overcome the temptation. The only sin that we can defeat is pardon sin. The only sin that we can overcome is sin that's already been pardoned. Hear that. If you came into the classroom despondent, you already looked at something you shouldn't have looked at this morning. You thought about uh, one of the people in this class in ways that you shouldn't have. You responded negatively to your roommate or to your parent. You've got a God who is already 100% for you in Jesus. You can't defeat that kind of sin. You can't see that ugliness overcome unless God's 100% for you. The only sin that you can conquer is forgiven sin. And the grace is reaching out and God is expanding His offspring in light of the single offspring. 
But this isn't it. This isn't eternity. I'm not looking for an eternal spiritual existence. I am longing for a physical one. A new earth. Where I get to eat lamb. How does that work when there's going to be no more death? Think about, that's, that's a good question. Jesus in his resurrected body ate fish and chips. When we see, if, if you're new to the area and you haven't been up to Lake Superior, oh, it's called a lake, yeah, just a lake, right? Just a puddle. Uh, get up there and see the power of God. Get up to the boundary waters and see the beauty, the quietness where you can actually see the stars. And all of that is merely foretastes, shadows. It's like in the, four, the seventh book of Narnia, once they're in, going deeper in and higher up, they see things and they're like, I think I've seen this before. And they look back and they... They see Narnia, and yet it's, it's not Narnia. It's, it's just it's like a shadow compared to the beauty. And deeper in and higher up, greater treasures, greater delights. Old age, old covenant, old creation, sin and death. New age, new covenant, new creation. This is the not yet period. But the already is here. If somebody says, are we living in the end times? Are we living in the last days? Peter says, this is what Joel said would happen in the last days. Pentecost. You've heard what the prophets said, but in these last days, the book of Hebrews 1.1 says, he has spoken to us through his son. Eskatu to Hamaru. The last days. We're living in the last days and the gospel is being proclaimed through suffering and through sharing. But the day is going to come when this old age will be no more. And that is our hope. Mission accomplished. There will be fires of judgment. And as we live in this period, we need to anticipate that reality and it should motivate us to fear our God and to call others to the same. But in that day, Missions will be no more. There's missions now because there's not worship. But in that day, missions will be no more, but worship will be forever. And the offspring will be complete, and we will be in paradise, eating from the tree of life, and we will be home at last. I handed out some scriptures to you guys. So I need some readers. Old Testament as foundation. Romans 1, 1 through 4. Paul is a servant, an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel. 
The good news that the reigning God saves and satisfies believing sinners through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Paul is set apart for the gospel that finds its source in God. All we had was bad news, and God, in spite of us, enters in with good news. It finds its source in God, but then it says it was promised beforehand. Where? Where was it promised? Through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel was promised beforehand through... Which scriptures do you think Paul's talking about? Pardon? The Old Testament. That's his primary Bible. That's what he gets to preach from. I'm not telling you anything but what the law of Moses and the prophets said would come to pass. That's his scripture. So the prophets proclaim the gospel... They weren't enjoying it yet, but they saw it from afar. They were waiting for the intrusion, the already but not yet, the intrusion of the kingdom of God through the person of Christ. This gospel of God coming from God through the vehicle of the prophets and the sacred writings is concerning the Son, who according to the flesh descended from David but who according to the Spirit was declared to be the Son of God in power through the resurrection of the dead by the Spirit of holiness. He comes with two natures, fully God, fully man. Next verse, John 5, 39. Look for him. Look for him this semester. First Peter 1, 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was to be given. When he predicted the suffering or yeah, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news. The prophets of the Old Testament proclaimed the very grace that you and I are getting to enjoy. It says those prophets, sometimes we might think, oh, they didn't really understand what they were talking about. It says there, they searched and inquired carefully to know what person and time the Spirit of Christ in them was foretelling the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. What were they searching, do you think? What was Isaiah searching and inquiring carefully He had a Bible too. Isaiah was looking at Moses in order to understand the person and the time. That means these prophets knew something about who Jesus was going to be. They even knew something about when he would come. They didn't know his name. And there were other elements that were not as clear to them. But they knew. You get to read the anticipation this semester. And I pray that you'll meet Jesus. Matthew 13, 17. They were longing. Oh, I wish I could be there. My world's filled with chaos. Yours is too. How long, O Lord, will you let injustice reign? How long? Oh, I long for the Messiah to come. 
And here we are. He has come. And the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 2 says that um, quoting Psalm 8 He made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and it was bestowed upon him uh, what does it say then? Uh, one more time. That, I set us up for that verse, but that's not the one in Psalm 8. Um, that glory and honor has been bestowed upon him. And then it says, oh, and God has put all things under his feet. It does not appear to us today that indeed all things have been put under his feet, but they have been. That's how the writer of Hebrews talks. It doesn't look like it when we're in the world of brokenness and divorce and separation and deep sadness, loss of jobs and heart attacks. But, but we remind ourselves that the future has intruded, that Jesus has come, that God is already 100% for us, and now death is gained, and there's power to overcome sin, and there's grace to persevere through suffering. This is a different world than Abraham lived in because we have something to look back to, not simply something to hope in. We have something to look back to, a benchmark reality that the day of the Lord has come. And that day will be consummated. That is our hope. They longed to see our day but didn't see it. And here we are, we're living in the midst of a day when Jesus has risen. John 8, 56. Abraham saw Jesus. So as you read Genesis, look and see where you might catch glimpses of him seeing. The Old Testament anticipated Christ. It is foundation, but in Jesus there is fulfillment. Matthew 5, 17 to 18. I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The sky is still there. It hasn't passed away. And Jesus is still working, still fulfilling. All will be accomplished, and that is our hope. Matthew eleven thirteen through 14. All the prophets were prophesying up to John. John is like the last old covenant prophet. And then change happens. May I decrease so that he might increase. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the the transformation of the ages. Every, all of history gets, gets uh, shifted from anticipation to realization, from promise to fulfillment in the person of Christ. Everything shifts to the age of fulfillment. Acts 13, 32-33.
Old Testament foundation, New Testament fulfillment. We looked through kingdom. That's just focused on the story part. And if you saw carefully, when I overviewed the Old Testament, Jesus' Bible, the way that it's structured, narrative books surround the commentary books. So that Chronicles is the last, that's part of the narrative. Genesis is the first. But then after Kings, after Israel shows up in exile, there's a break. But then when the story picks up again, notice they they show up in Babylon at the end of Kings, and the story picks up in Babylon. And then it continues on through the initial restoration. When we're thinking about just the story, K-I-N-G-D, that Old Testament part of the kingdom story, it shows up, K-I-N is is part of the law section, first five books of Moses. G is all of the former prophets from Judges, Samuel, sorry, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. That's the government in the land period. And then we read about the dispersion and return in Daniel, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles is written during that, that time. We read a lot about the the story in the commentary books. They're reflecting in the story. These prophets were preaching amidst the story and telling people who were living in this period, you're turning from God. Get back to Moses. Heed the covenant. Believe. These former writings are actually, even though they're filled with suffering, these are telling the stories and letting us hear the songs and the the laments of those who ultimately were trusting in God. These aren't the stories of the rebel majority, but of the very microscopic, faith-holding minority. Here's how I want to end. Why do we call it the Old Testament? Testament. What did I say it means? covenant. So why is it focused here? The Bible's covenantal nature. So what's a covenant? Luke? Is it Luke? All right. An agreement or promise. promise. So you've got two parties and they enter into a relationship. A covenant by nature is an elected relationship. I don't have a covenant with my kids. That's a kinship bond, but I do have a covenant with my wife. Because a covenant is by nature a chosen relationship, not one that just happens. Choose you this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We choose God, but only because He enlivens our hearts to choose Him. He's chosen us. We've chosen Him. He's the decisive mover. An elected relationship of obligation. There's two parties, and each party has obligations. Our requirement is to be dependent. When God says jump, we jump. And we do so because we believe His promises, that He's indeed going to be faithful to do His side, which is to provide and to protect. We call them blessings, and the opposite of provision and protection, curses. This is the framework of the Bible. When we talk about kingdom, kingdom is the fact that God reigns, but 
He's reigning over something. He's reigning over someone. And that, by its nature, creates relationship. And the language of relationship in the midst of kingdom is covenant. So this is the Bible's fancy word for relationship. And God enters in. He was the first one to have relationship in the inner Trinitarian beauty that was eternal. And that inner Trinitarian relationship gave rise to commitments and a purpose and a plan that would result in the greatest glory going to God through the death and resurrection of His Son. But out of that kingdom, eternally past relationship into space and time, God God creates space and time, and it naturally gives rise to covenant. So that all of these are merely reflections of a covenant-making God who in His being is about commitment. Now this obligation on each side is established under oath. We're going to see the significance of that in just a moment. But an oath is a promise. And in the ancient world, all oaths were made within a worldview that included the gods. There were no atheists that we see in the ancient world. Everyone believed that the spirits were everywhere. And when you made promises, you made promises in the presence of the gods so that they were the ones who would come and watch you. They know when you're sleeping and they know when you're awake. And, like Santa, they know if you've been bad or good, so you better be good for goodness sake. And God enters in and is not exactly that way. He's overflowing in mercy, and yes, He knows all that we are, and in spite of who we are, He makes a way for relationship. Abrahamic, Noahic, sorry, Adamic, Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, New. This These covenants shape the high points in the story of Scripture. And all five of them are already talked about in the the Old Testament. Already anticipated, already clarified. So that when Jesus says, this is the blood of the covenant, do this in remembrance of me, the blood of the new covenant, as Luke calls it, it had a context. They understood what he was referring to. Now, when we think about covenant, here's where we're going to end. When you think about covenant, I don't want you just to think about a God and a people. Covenant is going to shape all that you're doing over this next year. Indeed, it shapes everything that happens in the world. The reason that God can justly judge all the Muslims who live over in the high rise is because he's in covenant relationship with them through Adam. He is the Lord of all. And yet within that ultimate framework, there are also sub-covenants, distinctive ones. And the new covenant is a saving covenant. But all of this has to happen in a context, and this is what I want to draw attention to right now. That in all the covenants in the Bible, there's not just two parties, there's a place. Because we are not just spiritual beings, but that we are physical beings, and even once we lose our bodies, we're anticipating another new resurrection body, that relationship always happens in the context of a place. And this is the basic framework. You can draw this on your sheet. 
So long as the people that God created are living in proper relationship with God, God promises that the land will flourish. So long as God is allowing the land to the flourish, the people will be satisfied. And so long as the people are living rightly in God's land, he is glorified. That is the covenant triangle. But if any of those relationships, God, people, people, land, land, God, if any of them break down, the relationship will break down. And throughout all of salvation history, we see this relationship go sour. So let's consider how this works. Adamic Noahic covenant. The God is called Yahweh God in the narrative. Yahweh God has a relationship with mankind, Adam, humanity. But it's in a specific place. There is an Eden that is to be ever-expanding to fill the earth. And it's when humanity stops living rightly in relationship with God, failing to live on the planet the right way, that God severs this relationship and everything goes sour. And Adam and Eve get kicked out of the land and they fail to honor the Lord. Abrahamic covenant. Look at the red part first. God promises to Abraham that he will have an offspring that will enjoy itself, has responsibility to grow into a nation. God promises that he'll bless Abraham and calls him to be a blessing. He says it'll happen within the context of the promised land, but the ultimate goal of the Abrahamic covenant has two parts. The first part is fulfilled in the Mosaic Covenant. Stage two of the Abrahamic Covenant is only fulfilled in the New Covenant. Offspring of promise, Israelites living in the promised land, that is the Mosaic Covenant. But always the goal was that it would be ever-expanding to fill the earth until the day when all the nations, that this would expand so that all nations and the whole planet would be the context of relationship. Mosaic Covenant Stage one of the Abrahamic covenant in operation. It's national Israel. It's defined. They're in the promised land. And again, the vision is you'll be a kingdom of priests in the midst of all the world. The vision is that through the Mosaic covenant was never understood to be the end. Moses understood that it was temporary and that it would be broken. We're going to read that in Deuteronomy. Moses himself already realized that it would come to an end, the old covenant, and that it would be trumped by a prophet like him, a new mediator. And in that day, everything would be fixed. New covenant. Now you've got the triune God, believing Jew and Gentile, and we're waiting for the land. We're waiting for the new earth, but it's coming. It's coming. And there will be no more pain and no more tears. I'm inviting you into the Old Testament. It was Jesus' Bible. It points to him. And it's three-fourths of the Christian scripture. So if you want to know Jesus, you want to magnify him, understand your place in his kingdom, it's worth taking the next four and a half months to focus in on this part of scripture. Let me pray. Father, thank you for these students. 
Some of them, their minds are already going to the final touches they've got to put on their papers. I pray that grace for them. Let them have clarity, even in the midst of weariness. Thank you for helping us get through the material that we did. I pray that you would be honored in their lives, keep them from sin, and increase their satisfaction in the person of Jesus, I pray, for his glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.